Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You sent uh, your son who took on the form of humanity and he's become the great declarer of who you are and what you're all about. So, Father, I pray as we look at the scripture uh, this morning, you might bless us, bless the uh, kids who are in the uh, Sunday school right now. And Father, we just ask that your name would be glorified through these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Nice to be back with you all. Uh, it's been a little while since I've been with you, but I figured I would uh, give you some updates of some things that have been going on in the world of Bible archaeology. It's a little different from a straight exegetical approach, but uh, I wonder if uh, you realize how fast this field of archaeology is moving, how quickly it's moving. Uh, I'm with an organization uh, on the board of directors of an outfit called the Associates for Biblical Research. And you probably have never heard of them. Uh, I'm going to take a guess here that nobody in the room has ever heard of this group. Anybody ever heard of Associates for Biblical Research? Okay, got a couple of you. Uh, you may not have heard of them, but they actually have heavily influenced the field of archaeology. This group runs the largest archaeological digs in the world. Uh, the largest archaeological dig on earth this, uh, this year is at a place called, uh, uh, well, we Americans, we refer to it as Shiloh. When you go to Israel, you learn, out, you learn quickly that the uh, Israelites, the Jews, they've fouled up the pronunciation of everything. You know, like, for example, we all know that the fellow who slayed Goliath, that his name was David. But you go over to Israel and they actually have the nerve to call him David. And, uh, you know, the fellow that uh, led the Israelites out of uh, Egypt, obviously his name is Moses. Well, the Jewish people refer to him as Moshe, the nerve of them, you know, to call him. And this is another one of those things. Obviously, this is Shiloh. You go to Israel, though, you, that's not the word they use. The, the word they use is Shiloh. So, uh, but uh, the largest dig on earth was being conducted at, at Shiloh this past year. G- give you a sense of, of things. Uh, you had to guess, how many archaeological digs do you think are going on in Israel at any, any given year? About a hundred. There are a hundred of them going on at any, uh, you know, through the summer. Most uh, archaeological digs occur in the early part of the summer. There are very few, maybe eight of the hundred would be year-long activities. Uh, most of them over, uh, occur during the summer. Why do you think they occur during the summer? I mean, if you're going to dig in Israel, and Israel's a desert country for the most part, why would you dig in the summer in Israel? You think that would be a foolish thing to be doing. What do you think the reason for that is? That's exactly right. It has everything to do with slave labor. I mean, students. <laughs> it has to do with the American, the British, and the Canadian school year. That uh, not only do they come over and volunteer on your dig they'll actually pay you to let them dig on your dig. Uh, now, we, we don't charge them to dig on our dig, but you know, they'll, they have to, we'll, they'll have to play, pay to fly themselves over, and then they don't get anything while they're on the, the dig there. Uh, we don't pay them. None of these digs, or very few of these digs, would be able to operate if they had to pay all these people. Uh, so uh, American college kids, American high school kids, are regular fare on these digs. And only about eight of them are, uh, occur year-round. Uh, 
most of them go with a heavy dig season that starts somewhere early in May and goes through uh, the end of June. And uh, the digs are getting more and more interesting, and it has everything to do with technology. Uh, things are being found all the time. Uh, this was just a few weeks ago. Uh, this is a fella by the name of Josef Garfinkel, or Joseph Garfinkel. Um, he is digging at a spot that's being run by the Australians, incidentally. Uh, it's a, uh, a site at a place called Kiryat Gat. And they just in the past few weeks have now gotten definitive proof that Kiryat Gat, where they've been digging since 2015, is the city of Ziklag. And uh, Ziklag is mentioned at the end of uh, 1 Samuel. If you remember, there is a Philistine king who took kind of a liking to uh, David uh, named Akish. And uh, when David was being pursued by Saul, he hung out with the Philistines and he stayed at Ziklag along with 600 of his followers. But we didn't know where that was. We haven't, we, it's been lost to history until just three weeks ago. And now we've got definitive proof. Uh, it's actually a, a combined effort involving a, a University of Sydney in Australia and the Israeli Antiquities Division. But stuff is literally being found all the time. And the reason why that's important to me as somebody's chairman for Associates for Biblical Research is um, we like to show the world the abundant evidence that this book is historically accurate. Uh, it's... Uh, it's accurate in everything, it's uh, in every way. Every type of science it touches upon, it's accurate in. And uh, uh, so sure enough, uh, incidentally, you may not know this, but the entire field of archaeology is owing to Bible teachers. If you go to the about.com sites where they talk about different fields, they'll say Bible teachers gave rise to the field of archaeology. And it all goes back to uh, the Ottoman Turks in the 1800s. The Ottoman Turks uh, were having a budget crisis and they were trying to figure out what's a way to raise a lot of money. And one of the advisors to the Sultan said, you know, these Christians out of the West, they'll come to the Holy Land in droves if you just allow them to start coming in. So the Ottoman Turks uh, decided in the 1820s, 1830s, uh, let's start to advertise that people can come and visit the holy Christian sites in the land of Palestine. And all of a sudden, the Americans and the British and the Canadians start to pour in. Now, if you go to Palestine in 1825 and 1830, there's no sign that says Shiloh this way. There's no sign that says Ziklag is that way. Most of the places of Scripture had been lost to history. Their names had been changed. Islam, and the when it came in, it very much was seeking to stamp out any uh, reference to an Israeli, Israelite presence. So what do you do for your Bible teacher in the 1820s or 1830s? You've got to develop a science that helps you figure out where these things were. Where did uh, Joab climb up the shaft getting into Jerusalem? Where was the tunnel that's mentioned uh, during, that Hezekiah had built? You know, you know where these things were. Uh, and that really started what has become the field of, of archaeology. And, and uh, so this is one of those fields that's owing to you. Uh, this was found a few weeks ago. By the way, this is the... Um, this is the tell that they're digging at. And they found some inscriptions and some other things that gave them pretty much con confirmed proof that this is where uh, Ziklag would have been, this Philistine city. A few weeks before that, 
This is back in April. Uh, archaeologists, this was a, an Israeli dig uh, in the city of David, just south of um, the Temple Mount platform. They uncovered the ruins of a, a massive building, and uh, they have found tons of seals. These little things right here. Uh, they found tons of, um, they're basically little little seals or like little scarabs. And, and why they're so significant is sometime back, the Israelites under an archaeologist by the name of Elat Mazar, uh, she was reading the scripture and she was trying to figure out where King David's palace was. It's back in 2005. And she noticed there was a verse in scripture where it says, David went down to meet the Philistines at, and went to the Milo. And she said, well, if it says in the scripture, he went down to the Milo from his house, maybe his house is just up above it. So she looked 150 feet further up the hill from the Milo, which is the stone step structure, and started to dig. And sure enough, we found this enormous palace. And it turns out we now have pretty definitive proof. This is where King David would have lived. Later on, it becomes kind of a... Uh, uh, almost like the governmental headquarters for the kings of Judah. And the reason why that's significant is it has all these seals that are in it. Now, let's say that I'm going to sell you some land. I'm going to sell uh, uh, Brother Nor some land. And we're sitting here in the middle of 1000 B.C. We create a scroll where we lay out in the scroll the, the, where the property is located, a description of the property. And then we're going to take that scroll and we're going to seal it. We're going to seal it primarily with my seal because I'm the one selling it to him. So we're going to take a seal and we're going to take some kind of hot wax element. We're going to seal the outside of the scroll and I'm going to put my insignia, my seal. It's going to have my name, my father's name, my profession, and it might even have some decorative element on it. But it's only mine. I have a copy of it. Judah. Remember when Judah is with Tamar, he gives uh, his seal ring to her. Uh, so I'm going to have a copy, and there's one other copy that's had of my seal. You know who has it? The government. The government has an exact copy of my copy. So that when Dick goes down to the registrar's office and he says, I'm ready to get my land, I'm taking over that property, they'll ask him to produce the scroll, and then they'll look on the outside, and they'll see it's got my seal on it, and they'll compare it to their record of what Rob Sullivan's seal was. So if you follow what I just said to you, we have discovered a room that was kind of like the archival headquarters for the kings of Judah. And it's loaded to the max with these seals in it. There's tons of them. And why that's significant is because a lot of the characters that show up in the book of Chronicles and show up in the book of Kings, show up in the book of Jeremiah, we have their seals. You know what that says? They're historical personages. It's like 500, how many of you get advertisements in the mail where they give you a self-return address stamp, right? You know, every charity under the sun, they, you know, Rob Sullivan, 51 North U Terrace, Yonkers, New York, and they want me to give some contribution. If we were to find a bunch of these little stickers 500 years from now and it said Rob Sullivan, 51, it's pretty good evidence that Rob Sullivan existed. Well, it's the same with this. Uh, there's some, and we, we've only translated a few of these. We found King Hezekiah's uh, uh, seal a, a few years back. Uh, we found Isaiah the prophet's seal about a year ago. And this one was just a found. Uh, this is, uh, we believe that this is specific to a character in the Bible named Nathan Melech. 
who uh, is called a servant of the king uh, in 2 Kings 23.11. He's mentioned maybe in two verses in Scripture. But from an archaeological standpoint, this is powerful stuff. If you were going to make a forgery of something, you wouldn't bother with an obscure person whose name is referenced once in Scripture. And besides, we know from where this is found, it's in a layer that dates to right around the time that the events of 2 Kings 23 should be going on. So what I'm getting at here is we as Christians have too long um, allowed the skeptics to act as if science is their playpen. It's not. Many of these fields of science owe their starts to Bible-believing Christians. Archaeology happens to be the one that I'm real familiar with because of the, the organization I'm part of. Um, the other thing that is happening rapidly, and uh, let's go to a verse of Scripture. If you wouldn't mind going to uh, Exodus 31. And then we're going to talk about what's going on at Shiloh, because Shiloh is a pitched battle with skeptics and uh, Bible-believing Christians and Bible-believing Jews. Um, let's read uh, Exodus 31, verses 3 through 7, and give you a sense of how things are rapidly developing in the field of archaeology. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, uh, verse 1, we'll start off. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, and wisdom, and understanding, and knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, and silver, and bronze, and cutting jewels for setting, and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony and mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle. So uh, Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, and Bezalel, the son of Uri, are the two primary engineers, technicians, carpenters, artisans that are responsible for building the tabernacle. And their father's names are given. Well, wouldn't you know it? Aholiab is the son of Ahissamach, who's of the tribe of Dan. Back in 1905, uh, Hilda and William Matthew Flinders Petrie, like the Petrie dish. The Petries were a couple, uh, a couple that were very well uh, versed and trained. They were trained uh, out of, I believe, Oxford. Uh, they uh, were archaeologists and anthropologists. Now, remember, 1905, archaeology is still fairly new as a field. And uh, they're digging in the Sinai Peninsula at a quarry area. And they recover this stone. There was a slew of these stones, uh, I think four altogether, that seem to be telling us a story. And there's hieroglyphs written on this. Now, this is a badly weathered stone to give you a sense of where the writing is, look, to, look at the image on the right. They knew it was some kind of very, very old Paleo-Hebrew, seemed to have uh, some Hebrew elements, to, certainly had a, a hieroglyphic element to it. But it was a language that we'd started, we were starting to see written down in different parts of the Sinai Peninsula, in different parts of Egypt. 
And we did not know how to translate this. So these four slabs that were found back then, 1905, have been sitting in the British Museum. And no one was sure how to translate them until two years ago. Two years ago, a fellow by the name of Doug Petrovich had cracked the code on understanding what this hieroglyph actually was telling us. And now, after we looked at this particular stone and the other three, now remember, they're digging in a quarry area that's in the Sinai Peninsula. There were certain things in the quarry that gave them the sense, because there was this allusion to tribe of Dan, tribe of Dan, tribe of Dan, that they felt that this was a quarry area that must have had Danites digging in it, and seemingly they appeared to be slaves. So they're digging this area, and finally Doug Petrovich, he cracked the code, and he determined that the stone I just showed you uh, referenced the overseer of minerals, Ahisamach. He's from the tribe of Dan, and he seems to be responsible for this quarry area, and particularly getting minerals, and in some cases uh, jewels and gems, out of this quarry area. Now, now why is this significant? Is this definitive proof that this Ahisamach is the one that's mentioned in Exodus 31? Well, it's certainly good speculative evidence. It's good conjecture would lead you to believe that it's the same fella, the one whose son is going to build the tabernacle. And uh, now, do we know 100% that this is the same guy? He's Israeli, he's from the tribe of Dan, and he's overseeing a bunch of diggers that are at this quarry area that seem to be used by the tribe of Dan in support of Egypt. That's what the evidence said. I'm bringing this to your attention because we didn't crack this till about 18 months ago. Do you know how many tablets and how much pottery is sitting in the British Museum or in the museum in Berlin or the ones in, in, uh, in the Netherlands or even in yours Museum of Natural History or, or up, up in New York where we've never translated the stuff that's on it? There's a gold mine of stuff to be found just by looking what we've already found. Um, so, it's a fast-moving field. Now, Shiloh is the pitched battle in so many ways. It is the second most, second most important archaeological dig on Earth, and it's the largest archaeological dig on Earth. The most important archaeological dig on Earth right now is uh, the Temple Sifting Project. As you may know, this uh, some of the Muslim... Uh, uh, officials that oversee the Temple Mount, they were trying to build a mosque and they decided to, uh, I say excavate, they really just dug out this whole area so they could expand a mosque under the Temple platform. And in the process of digging out this Temple platform, they threw all this, uh, uh, all the stuff that they had dug out and threw it into the valley area. It's a nightmare for archaeologists. Uh, frankly, it was really an offense that they would even do that because they're destroying history in the process. And they all know. They all know that this site is sacred to everybody, that they would go ahead and do that without doing an archaeological excavation. It really is an effort to cover up the evidence that's there. But even at that, if you're an archaeologist and you get a debris field versus a, you know, what would be more of a pure tell dig, you'll take the debris field if you can't get anything else, right? And uh, so that's the most important archaeological dig in, in the world, uh, biblically. Uh, you could make the case that this is the second most and the reason for that is has something to do with, uh, and it's governed our seminaries for 50, 60 years now. It's the idea that the Bible is a collection of stories that have been exaggerated over time. 
stories that were written well after the fact, that they really are not historical eyewitnesses accounts. And one of the places that was cited as being evidence that your Bible was not accurate by uh, skeptics was Shiloh. And the reason for that is Shiloh is the most important place in the Old Testament before, uh, before Jerusalem becomes Israel's capital. The tabernacle is sitting there for close to 300 years. And uh, it's where the land was divided. Uh, skip, skip here for a second. Go to Joshua 18, verse 1. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh or Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. It's where Joshua made his capital. It's where he made his headquarters. It's where they divided up the tribes. What tribe was going to get what land? That all occurred at Shiloh. And it's where the tabernacle stood for, for almost 300 years. Samuel is there. Eli is there. You know, uh, Samuel's mother is there. there. There's so many important figures that are there. And Joshua is there. And the reason why this became such a key battle for those who have a high view of Scripture is because of the history of digs taking place here. Uh, back in 1926, a team from Denmark, a Danish team, dug there in 26, again in 1932, and again in 1963. Uh, now, when they get there in 26 and 32, it's controlled by the British. When they get there in 63, it's controlled by the Israelis. And uh, I'll show you where it is in a map in a second. That's an aerial view of the place. Uh, the Danes dig there and they know the history of Shiloh. They know this place is supposed to be Shiloh. And they say this. There's no evidence that the Israelites were ever here during the late Bronze Age. Now, you don't know what the late Bronze Age is. I didn't either. But you want to think Book of Judges. Book of Joshua, Book of Judges is late Bronze Age. If there's no evidence, and this is Shiloh, that the Israelites were there, you've got a problem if they're not there during the late Bronze Age because the Scripture says this is the center of Israel life, Israeli life, in the 1300s, the 1200s, the 1100s B.C. So the Danes said, Bible's wrong. It goes throughout seminaries in, in Berlin and in, in London, U.S., 1981, an Israeli archaeologist by the name of Finkelstein, Israel Finkelstein, uh, digs there. And he's a minimalist. It means he doesn't believe the Bible either. He thinks it's, uh, some stories are true, some are not true. And he starts to find little snippets of evidence. There may have been some Israelites there, but they came later. Still nothing like what the Bible says. And Israel said in 1984, they're kind of upset so they said, that's it. No more digs at Shiloh. And you understand what's going on in the 80s. You're setting up for the Intifada to start, where there's going to be this ongoing war with the, uh, the PLO. And, the, and, and if you've got your own archaeologists, your own antiquities department saying Shiloh, which is where your headquarters supposedly was before King David came on the scene, there's no evidence of Israel's presence. That hurts your case. So Israel shut down the digs. And they said, we're not going to let anybody else dig there. And... Uh, they had a visitor center, and that's that weird looking thing. that looks like the Dome of the Rock in the middle there. Uh, and they had to come up with this crazy idea that the reason there's no evidence that Israel was there was because when the Philistines took the ark, they came up to Shiloh and destroyed the whole place and burned everything down and destroyed every scrap and every reference to Israel being there. The problem is that Scripture never says that. 
Scripture says they grabbed the ark down in the battlefield. They never came up to Shiloh and took Shiloh. So if you were to go to that visitor center, you would hear this crazy idea that the Philistines um, had completely destroyed Shiloh. That's why there's no evidence of Israel being there. So my group comes into existence in 1967. And it started uh, with a fellow, believe it or not, his name was David Livingston. He's an archaeologist, and uh, he's loosely related to the David Livingston from what we can tell. But uh, he's flying on a plane to Israel, and uh, he knows about Shiloh. He knows about Jericho. There's this whole fight going on down in Jericho uh, because, again, minimalists are saying Jericho was the walls did not collapse at the time. And there's no evidence that Israel ever took it. This is back in the 60s. So he's flying over there and he's over listening to professors talk on the air flight over to Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv, actually. And uh, he hears them say, you know, these are Israeli professors. And on the flight over, he hears them say, you know, archaeology just keeps showing that the Bible's not true. And it drove him crazy because he's an archaeologist. He's like, it's actually never shown anything like that. If anything, it confirms the scripture is true. So he launches Associates for Biblical Research with the idea that we're going to show that the conquest uh, really did take place. And he starts us working in Jericho, kind of puts us on the map, uh, give you a sense of where Shiloh is. You see where Jerusalem is on that map? If you go do right above it, you see Givat Ze'ev. Ramallah, which is really the capital of the West Bank for the Palestinians. Go north of that. You got Beth El, Ophrah. North of that, you see Shiloh. That's where Shiloh is, smack dab in the middle of the West Bank. So the Israelis, and incidentally, uh, when you go on these digs, uh, and uh, they're a lot of fun to go on. I'm kidding you in saying it's like slave labor. You're covered in head to toe in mud by the end of the day. I just want to forewarn you, uh, sisters. But it is great. What time do you think you wake up to go on your archaeological dig in the morning? Well, your breakfast is at 345 in the morning. Uh, you're going to be on that bus by 445, 5 o'clock, and you're going to be on the dig site by 6 a.m. working. Why do we start the dig so early? Two reasons. It's a desert. And there's not exactly a whole lot of trees there. And we're going to put up tarps and everything. That's one of the reasons why you want most of your work to be occurring before the sun is at the hottest part of the day, which is about two in the afternoon. The second reason has to do with a little thing called traffic. You're in the, going into the West Bank. You've got to go through checkpoints. You, got to get out. you want to be doing that at five in the morning, not at eight in the morning. So anyway, you go by Ramallah. Uh, and you're in a different world there. Any of you have been to Israel? I know a number of you have been because I've been with you uh, there. Um, this is the security fence outside of Ramallah. And you can see a little Palestinian uh, graffiti artist. They spray painted a picture of, a, of a, a woman holding an AK-47. She's celebrated as a hero in Ramallah, not so much by the Israelis. She went into an Israeli school and shot up the school. Uh, she's celebrated as a freedom fighter by the Palestinians and the Israelis... Uh, don't think of her in quite that way. Who do you think we get along with better as an evangelical archaeological troop? Do you think we get along better with the Palestinians or the Israelis? We get along with both pretty well. We're not picking. We know what the Bible says, but we know there are actually more Christians that are Arabs than, than are Israelis. 
and you love them both. You want to see both groups come to Christ and politics is not our affair. We're there to do archaeology. Uh, give you a sense of the thing. Uh, the people we're doing the intellectual heavy lifting with are frankly the Israelis and they're wonderful to us. You'll see how good they are to us in a second. But the Arabs, the, the Palestinians, they take care of us. They feed us. They drive our buses. Uh, when you order pizza on the dig and they bring out all these pizzas, they're not kosher, thank goodness. They're good pizza. And there is something to that Middle Eastern hospitality thing. Those bus drivers, when they drop you off, you know what they do? They sit with their buses, guarding the buses. They're herbs. They're guarding the buses, protecting it, waiting for you to come out. If somebody gets sick, they'll run them into the city. You know, and we have our own doctors on the site, but, but we get along with them both really, really well. Uh, anyway, we've not, nobody's been allowed to dig there since 1984. Uh, Shiloh gets its name. We have no evidence that Shiloh was ever named that. It's, a, uh, it's an Amorite city. Uh, there's no evidence that Shiloh was named that uh, before, um, before Joshua got there. At least that's what the best evidence suggests. We think they named it Shiloh at this point because of Genesis 49. If you remember the prophecy, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. This is uh, Jacob on his deathbed. Jacob is on his deathbed. He summons all his sons to him and he gives a series of maledictions and benedictions to each of his boys and what would happen to their descendants. And he says this about Judah. This is why the Israelites knew the Messiah must come from the tribe of Judah. It comes from these verses. Uh, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. It's where the idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah first shows up. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. It it's, uh, gives rise to the idea, furthers the idea that Messiah may actually be God himself. And uh, uh, now this is an interesting prophecy because Jacob is actually telling us when Messiah was going to be on the scene. You know that? Do you know that that's a prophecy that tells you when Messiah will be on the scene? It says the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. In other words, once he comes, the scepter will depart. Now, what's the scepter? In Mesopotamian cultures, it actually extends all the way out to Britain uh, down through the past 2000 years. But in Mesopotamian culture, a scepter is a staff. You see this in the book of uh, Esther, by the way. Scepter is a staff. And if a king is listening to a capital case where somebody's life is on, on the line for a crime they've committed, if the king, we know this across Mesopotamian culture, we know this from the Persians, the Babylonians, and we know it from the Israelites. If the king were to take his scepter and he were to dip it towards the person who's on trial for their life, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It means the king is going to let them live. If he takes the scepter and dips it the other way, not so good for you. Off with their head, right? You see this in the book of Esther, by the way. Remember Esther? She's being urged to go see the king, Ahasuerus. And she says, look, he hasn't summoned me. And if I go to see him and he doesn't dip the scepter towards me, he'll kill me. So you see it in the book of Esther. You know that the entire time that Israel is in captivity in Egypt, we know this from extra biblical writings, 
that the Israelites always retained the right of capital punishment over their own citizens. They could put their own people to death and the Egyptians would not get involved. We know from language that shows up in Ezra and Nehemiah, they had that same right while they're in captivity in Babylon. There's terms like princes and that shows up. They could commit capital punishment over their citizenry. It was never removed by the Persians, never removed by the Greeks. You know who removed it, right? In 7 AD, a Roman governor by the name of Caponus removes the Jews' right to commit capital punishment over their citizenry because he's so fed up with their corruption. He sees a lot of times they use it for political purposes. So he removes their right to commit capital punishment. Do you know that there are scrolls, there are um, uh, uh, Talmudic scrolls from the first century where there are actually quotes from Jewish rabbis where they say, oh my goodness, God broke his promise to us because we've lost the right of capital punishment and Messiah is not on the scene. Except who is on the scene in 7 AD? There's a little 12-year-old carpenter's son running around. Anyway, for some reason, the Israelites, as they're setting up the tabernacle, we believe it's at this point that the city gets changes from its Amorite name to start to be called Shiloh. And uh, here's the dig troop. Uh, this is from last year when I was with them. Uh, this, uh, the people wearing the blue are paid staff. Uh, I think we had 400 people digging last year. Um, the week I was there, there was like 170 or so. <clears throat> this is not your grandfather's archaeological dig. Do you know that we rent time on an Air Force satellite to image the site? We have drones flying overhead most of the time while we're digging. And you know what they're doing? They're imaging the site repeatedly. They want to know every stone that was picked up. We have full service labs on site. Uh, this is a pretty sophisticated operation. Uh, we've got archaeologists who are, who are professors at different universities from all over the Western world. They're supervising the college and high school students. By the way, we really like high school kids and particularly high school girls to go on these digs. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the things that archaeologists joke about. But something about the way teenage girls are wired because they always find the most important stuff. I don't know if they've got eyes trained to look. The guys never find anything. The girls, oh, look what I just found. You know, five of the... Five of the past seven years, the most important thing found on the dig site were found by high school or college girls. I'm like, what is this? Is it was a girl back in the, in the 70s, she found this thing. She goes, I didn't know the, uh, the uh, Israelites smoked. And, uh, and uh, Gordon Franz, who's uh, one of the archaeologists, he's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? She goes, well, I found this really, really old cigarette. Now, she's just a high school kid. How would she know? But, by the way, everybody gets trained on these sites, but still, you can't cover all the bases. Uh, so she says, look, I found this old cigarette. And Gordon Franz is like, that's no cigarette. It turned out to be the oldest copy of Scripture ever found. A little Hinnom Valley amulet. Was it, you unrolled it, it was Deuteronomy 6. Another part of it was Numbers 21. And uh, so we like the high school kids to come, boys or girls, uh, college kids. Real sophisticated. Uh, you get there, the first thing you do is you put up your black tarps. Uh, you know, the Arabs always laugh at the Americans. You know why they laugh at the Americans? Americans are over there getting their suntan, right? You ever see the Arabs over there in the desert? They're covered fully. They're smart, smarter. Uh, we do the same thing. We put these tarps over us to keep the sun away from us, or otherwise you'd be scalded alive. Uh, there's part of the dig team. I was there. Do you know, that if Israel, you know what Israel told us? If you can prove we were here, 
back during the time of the Book of Judges. You get to redo the entire narrative that's in that UFO-looking visitor center. If you can prove that we were here, we'll let you say whatever you want. So you know what we're going to say. Do you think we found evidence that Israel was there in the three years we've been digging? Wait till you see. Uh, there I am, the most handsome guy in the upper right-hand corner. I look like a reverse raccoon. I must have been my sunglasses on. See my eyes? Weird looking. There's uh, Scott Stripling to the right. He, uh, you might see him on the History Channel. He's on all the time. Uh, and to the left is Tommy Chamberlain. He's our attorney uh, who represents ABR. Uh, and he's also on the board. The guy on the left is uh, uh, Ronnie. Remember I said five of the last seven years, a high school kid found the most important thing? He's the other two years. He a, was a biker, a hell's angel biker, who... Uh, Wife led him to Christ. And I don't have enough time. I'll tell you that story maybe some other time. Everything that goes into the ground, every uh, dig, every, uh, every scoop of sand that gets dug up gets three touch points. It's first evaluated by those who are actually doing the digging. There's my 16-year-old niece, Rebecca, with the red hair and 17-year-old uh, uh, Anna Rose Henderson. Her father's an elder in the York meeting. Uh, but they're doing the first touch point. They're scooping the dirt out and they're putting it in these goofa bags and they're looking for three things. Looking for bones, looking for pottery, or anything else that looks kind of weird. And then they put them in separate bags and they're going to get escalated up to more sophisticated folk. And then they take the goofa and they send it along to be sifted. They're usually using a trowel used to call it a troll, and then one of the archaeologists said, a troll lives under a bridge. This is a trowel. Um, they go digging through the stuff, and it gets sifted by Santa Claus. He's not really Santa Claus, but actually everybody sifts, everybody digs, everybody does wet sifting. Uh, but he's doing the second touch point. He's looking to see, after he sifts it, is there anything that jumps out? And then there's this third touch point which is wet sifting. It was only invented about 10 years ago. L little story for you. We first got to Shiloh. The reason we were allowed to dig at Shiloh, remember I told the Israelis said no more archaeological digs? We had been digging in a place called uh, Kerbet El Nisia for 17 years. We were convinced it was the city of Ai in Joshua 6, Joshua 7. And uh, we dug there for 17 years. At the end of 17 years, we definitively proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that its biblical significance was nothing. We dug there for 17 years and showed there wasn't anything in Scripture that was referencing this place. We're mortified. Spent a lot of money digging at this place for 17 years. And at the time, we're like, this is embarrassing. We're going to be the laughing stock of the entire archaeological community. We spent millions of dollars on this thing, and it's nothing. All things work together for the good, right? Israel's watching this whole thing go on. And the Israelis Antiquities Division sent us a letter. It said, we've noticed that your report after the end of 17 years of digging at Kerbet El Nisia concluded that there's no biblical significance. The Israeli Antiquities Division is stunned with your forthrightness. Many of your ilk are not forthright. If you want to dig somewhere, let us know and we'll get you the permit. So, we did find I. It's the city of uh, Kerbet El Makader. 
so we asked for Shiloh. An hour later, they gave us permission. So we got in there. And I'm quickly running out of time. Uh, they're so helpful to us. Now remember, we're in the middle of the desert. There's not exactly plumbing lines. There's a visitor's center. But we have to get the water out to the dig site so we could do wet sifting. And wet sifting is where you take this elaborate garden hose and you spray everything down. Magically, over the winter, it showed up. A plumbing line stretching for a thousand feet from the place where the pipes were out to our dig site. The Israelis said, oh, we needed to put a plumbing line in. They're helping us. It would have cost us thousands and thousands of dollars to have done that. They did it for us. Anyway, so what have we found? There is no longer going to be a dispute that the Israelites were here during the time of the late Bronze Age. And the reason for that is because of the things we found. Do you know that we haven't found tens, we haven't found hundreds, we haven't found thousands. We've found tens of thousands of bones of ceremonially clean animals. We have found dozens and dozens of artifacts, scarabs, that show that the conquering people that took Shiloh had just come up out of Egypt a generation earlier. And we found this peculiar thing that was a ceramic pomegranate. I and mean, now we found a couple of them. Now, real quick, pomegranates show up in the scripture. They decorate the tabernacle, they decorate the temple. The reason that pomegranates are so significant in the Bible is because the Jews, you remember the, the high priest's robe, it's decorated with a bell and a pomegranate at the bottom. Uh, the capstones in the temple are pomegranates. Uh, that's a pomegranate off to the right, in case you want to know what it looks like. You cut it open and it's got dozens and dozens and dozens of seeds. Not dozens, hundreds. Uh, the Jews began to identify the pomegranate as being a symbol of worship because it represented the law to them. The reason for that is this. Did you know there's 600 and... Uh, what's 365 plus... Uh, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, in the Torah. There's 365 thou shalt nots, and there are 248 thou shalts. And because a typical pomegranate in Israel, not every single one of them, but if you do enough of them, and on average, pomegranates in Israel have about 613 seeds. So because there's 613 commandments and there were 613 seeds in the pomegranate, it becomes a symbol of the law. So when you're digging as an archaeologist and you're digging in the Middle East or in Israel and you start finding pomegranates, ceramic pomegranates, you know, the Israelis were there. It's a symbol of their law. Well, we're finding these things. And some of them we're finding to have Hebrew writing on them. We just recently, in the past few weeks, uh, found uh, a bronze altar, a horned altar. I'm oh, sorry, not a bronze, a stone altar. Um, we decided to spend a little extra money and go back through Finkelstein's debris field. Go back through the Danes' debris field from 1922 and 26. You know, it was in their, their refuse. In other words, they said there's nothing significant to this. They threw it on the side. We went back through it. We had teams go through all the debris that they had dug up. We found thousands of things. It's not that they were dishonest. They didn't have the technology we do. It's not that they were trying to undermine the Bible. They didn't have high-pressure water jets and drones flying overhead and, and what we do. And the evidence from the three digs, from the Danish dig, from the Israeli dig, and from our dig, is overwhelming. 
Israel was there during the book of Judges. So let me leave you with that thought and uh, uh, that the Bible, as time goes on, it is confirming of the reliability of the scripture. That's that scepter thing. Uh, Now, how much does the Bible spend of its time talking about history? And our whole book is a history book. Bible, amongst other things, is a history book. But even before that, it's a love letter. Bible's a love letter. I'm just trying to present evidence to you that even some seemingly obscure things, and none of them are unimportant, but the Bible can be proven to be historically reliable with. Even archaeology, which says one thing in the 1980s, is now going to have to change its tune coming out of this dig and say, yeah, the Bible was right all along. Uh, Its primary message, though, has everything to do with Shiloh. And I don't mean Shiloh the place. I mean Shiloh the man. Uh, The scripture promised from way, way back from the beginning that one day God would send his son into the world to redeem the world of its sins. And uh, the wonderful thing is that uh, you have the opportunity to have your sins forgiven. There is a scary, scary verse that shows up in the book of Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah 59 and we'll finish with this. Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The scripture teaches that our sin, any thought we've done that's wrong, any action we've done that's wrong, separates us from God. Now, did you know that the Bible teaches that God is in hell? The psalmist says, if I were to make my bed in hell, thou art there. Scripture teaches that God is absolutely everywhere. He's everywhere. Uh, he's in a black hole. He's in the midst of the black hole. For fun, he jumps into and out of it every day. You know, uh, He's in the smallest of things and he's the biggest of things. He's not those things. He's separate and apart from his creation, but he's absolutely everywhere. So how can it be that your sins have separated you from God? It has everything to do with the relationship. And judicial standing. When you die in your sins, and by that I mean you've never put your trust in Christ as your Savior, Isaiah 59 verse 2 becomes your modus operandi for the rest of time. Your sins have separated you from God, and the explanation of that is such that he will not hear you. You will never be able to interact with him ever, ever again. You will go to a lost eternity where you will no longer have access to the sovereign Lord of the universe because you've chosen to reject his free gift offer of salvation in the person of his son. You must put your trust in Christ or Isaiah 59 verse 2 will be the single reality of your eternity. Don't let that happen. You must respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. His book is true, and what it tells us is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that is, whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And whoever doesn't believe in him will have everlasting death. And that's the facts. So let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. And uh, if you're all believers here, hopefully that last part, you're across the finish line, and it's just an exhortation to keep evangelizing. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you that There is a way of salvation at all.
The world has the gall to say, how dare there be only one way of salvation? The awesome thing is that there is a way of salvation at all. Father, we thank you for the field of archaeology and uh, that it just keeps, seems like every week now, there's some new bit of evidence showing that the Bible was historically accurate. And we're grateful that. Lift these things up, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.